You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Alec Baldwin. This past season on my podcast, Here's the Thing, I spoke with more actors, musicians, policymakers, and so many other fascinating people, like jazz bassist Christian McBride. Jazz is based on improvisation, but there's very much a form to it. You have a conversation based on that melody and those chord changes. So it's kind of like giving someone a topic and say, okay, talk about this. Listen to the new season of Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Cable news is ripping us apart, dividing the nation, making it impossible to function as a society and to know what is true and what is false. The good news is that they're failing and they know it. That is why we're building something new. Be part of creating a new, better, healthier, and more trustworthy mainstream by becoming a Breaking Points premium member today at breakingpoints.com. Your hard-earned money is going to help us build for the midterms and the upcoming presidential election so we can provide unparalleled coverage of what is sure to be one of the most pivotal moments in American history. So what are you waiting for? Go to breakingpoints.com to help us out. So we've got a new report from Fox Business on some additional significant financial troubles for Trump's social media company, Truth Social. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. Again, this is from Fox Business, so uh, a little bit of a right-leaning site here taking a, taking a shot at the social media app. They say Trump's social media app facing financial fallout. Truth Social's finances may be in significant disarray, sources say. I'm sure everyone will be shocked by that. Um, they are, what's driving this report is they're locked in what they describe as a bitter battle with one of their vendors claiming the platform has stiffened the company out of more than a million dollars in contractually obligated payments. In October, RightForge, that's the company that they're in yep. this dispute with, they had announced they entered into this agreement to host Truth Social. RightForge is this very sort of like ideological group. I know some of the guys involved. You can imagine. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. their whole thing's right. like, we're going to be a place yes. where we don't right. discriminate against your political views and free speech and all of that stuff. So they make this deal with uh, Truth Social, but they now contend they have reneged on their contractually obligated monthly payments for setting up the platform's web servicing infrastructure. That's according to three people with direct knowledge of the matter, and those people say uh, that Truth Social made just three payments and then just stopped paying around March. Um, RightForge claims Truth Social owes it around $1.6 million, and they are threatening legal action to recoup the money. They also say in this article that this would be one of the most significant vendors 
for Truth Social. Yeah. So this isn't a small bill. It's not a surprise. I actually know the guys behind Right Forge. I've known them for years. Martin Avila, he's the CEO of the company, he said our founding vision was to make a second amendment, is to make a second internet to support American ideas. They believe in the mission of President Trump's free speech platform, wish to continue supporting the president in his media endeavors. But it's a problem if people don't pay. You don't pay. That's this is always, <laughs> difficult to do. This is always the issue, right, with Trump, which is that this is why a lot of lawyers also won't work for the guy because they're like, he doesn't pay his bills, which is actually true. If you look uh, beyond, like, well into the past. Now that he's got a campaign and a super PAC, yeah, you might actually pay their bills. But with Trump's Truth Social, it's an actual private company, which is owned, you know, Trump Organization and Trump himself. That's a whole other story. Yeah. yeah. Now, as you guys recall, because we've covered this closely, at the beginning Truth Social launch, it took me months before my mm-hmm. account was yep. accepted. It was a total disaster in terms of the launch, just from a technical standpoint. Then um, they were facing some legal troubles, inquiries from the SEC about the way that this was formed. It's a so-called blank check company, but there were questions of whether or not it was really a blank check company or whether they actually knew what deal they were going to do. So there have been inquiries into that. And now you have these reports of, you know, if if a company isn't paying their bills, it's not a good sign in general. Now, it could be this is just sort of like Trump's t- typical practice of screwing over vendors and contractors. Um, and Or it could be that they're in like relative, fully finan- relative financial distress and don't really have the cash to be able to pay up. Well, how do they make money? Right. Ads? Like, uh, listen, well, that's right. Ask Twitter how that's been working out for them for the last Well, year. and we know as people who have yeah. launched, you know, a small business that the energy is greatest right at the beginning. So the fact that they screwed up their launch yep. so badly, I'm right. sure was a major hit to them in terms of, um, you know, how many people like went and tried to sign up and it didn't work and they're like, ah, screw this and never went back. I'm mm-hmm. sure a lot of people felt that way. Now, reportedly, there's been an increased sort of interest and um, adoption of the um, social media site since the FBI raid of Mar-a-Lago. Mm, there's more interest in it. And I right. think they built down the user base a little bit. honestly, being like, well, we need to monitor what Trump is saying. True. Yeah. I've been seeing yeah. a lot more of his truths yeah. out there recently, <laughs> so it has yeah. made it a little bit more relevant. So perhaps that will be yeah. enough to overcome their uh, apparent financial difficulties. All right, guys, we have a little treat for you, our audience, and also specifically for my dear friend yes. Sagar here. haven't seen it. Who haven't has seen it not yet. yet seen the big Breitbart movie trailer for their uh, Hunter Biden, supposedly based on a true story, movie called mm. My Son Hunter. The trailer is really something. Let's take a look. So I'll tell you what's going down. Do you know who I am? They told me you were VIP. All connected to the government. What kind of a moron forgets to pick up his laptop at a repair shop? You're a Biden. Act like one. Everything he built, life, I just ruined it all. I want to know everything that's on that laptop that can ruin my erection. My friends, it's time to party! I'm an artist. Tell me how I can help you. I don't deserve help. Oh, I'm so sorry. I've been through worse. You're the smartest man I know. Thanks, Dad. Your thoughts? <laughs> oh, There's a, a Biden hair sniffing moment in that trailer yeah, too. That's, that we didn't uh, that's, get to. that's something else. I I don't know. I mean, it looks terrible. No offense to <laughs> J 
Gina Carano. I actually like Gina Carano. She was awesome in The Mandalorian. Yeah, I don't know. You know what's interesting too is that there's a lot of war. There must. This is like a studio war because this is distributed. I was looking it up by Breitbart. Whereas Daily Wire has also been doing its own brand of like new movie studios coming for Disney. Oh, for real. All that stuff. So this is also like an internecine conflict mm. between the two. I think Gina. I did. I think so. I think she works for Ben Shapiro and the Daily Wire. So I don't know how this all no idea, worked out. But I'm gonna be honest. It doesn't look very good. Um, <laughs> you don't think so? Yeah, it just doesn't. You know, it looks it badly like- acted. Not particularly. It just seems like a boomer rent. It's like a Dinesh D'Souza movie. That's yeah, a, yeah, yeah, that's the best yeah, way to describe yeah, it. Yeah. That's that's what the market right. is for sure. I mean, it seems um, also like they potentially make Joe Biden and Hunter Biden look a lot more cool. Oh, you think? Yeah, yeah that's exactly. Especially it's like, Joe. I assure you, with Hunter having seen some of these videos, it's not as glamorous as it's, that. It's more it's actually sad than really like, pathetic with the crack life pipe. And, yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> like, he's not like Jason. Whatever that guy, the action hero is. It's like he's actually just like Jason a pathetic. Bourne. Yeah, like a Jason Bourne. He's like a pathetic, skinny crack addict talking with like Eastern European hookers who, yeah, who themselves are like obviously exploited. It's very sad, the whole thing. Yes, it is very sad. And also like, I mean, they really seem in the trailer to paint Joe Biden as this like sort of like patriarchal mob boss type of figure that I also don't think, you know, I don't think he has that sort of like executive management type of (laughs) skill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, In reality, he was probably just a bad father, like, I mean, a ba- like a very negligent father, which, from what I can tell, seems to actually be the case, at least with Hunter and his listen, daughter. Listen, I don't, I don't want to go down yeah. that path because I don't know. I mean, I like obviously his his wife and daughter die in a yeah. car accident, and the boys are in the car; they're both injured, and he's sworn into office and starts his public life like while they're in the hospital, and mm-hmm. so this their life has been extremely public. Um, you know, their father has been very busy and been in the public eye the whole time. I'm not going to go the, down the path of judging people's parenting. But on a serious note about the the politics here, I mean, if Republicans take power in the midterms, they're yeah, get ready. Be yeah, all get ready. about. Hunter I mean, some Biden. of it we should learn, right? Especially the stuff. Look, some of it, put the drug stuff aside. I mean, clearly China. they love the like salacious. Oh, sure personal part of this, but I mean, listen, if there are things to learn about the corruption, mm-hmm. we've always said that is incredibly relevant, but um, yeah, I mean, they they haven't been able to put together like a policy agenda, but this for sure will be part of their uh, their plan if yep. they take back power. I agree. So something right. to look forward to, guys. Some very exciting news that we want to share with you guys. Hillary Clinton and Chelsea Clinton have a new Apple TV show. It's called Gutsy. I know you're thrilled about this. Let's take a look. Okay, here we go. We're hitting the road to shine a light on women who inspire us to be bolder and braver. Leadership doesn't look one way. It's a giant rainbow. You're not gonna break me down. You'll get worn out before I do. Women who push us outside our comfort zone. You got this. And make us laugh. I'm in deep Georgia, and they might have never met a Muslim. Or they don't know they have. Or they don't know they have. Because we walk among you. You have a marriage that has been on public display Ooh. since the beginning. You said the gutsiest thing you ever did was stay in your marriage. That doesn't mean that's right for everybody. To throw someone's life away when people really do make changes, I just believe in second chances. My mother needed rehabilitation, not prison. Your survival is your power. I'll take 
someone say to me, you're not good enough because you have melanin, how dare you? I have a master's in whites. I just want whites to get a GED in blacks. Here's how they market it. Having, I'm having big time 2016 DNC flashbacks. What do Kim Kardashian, Gloria Steinem, Megan Thee Stallion, and Jane Goodall all have in common? They're gutsy. Join us for intimate conversations with some of the world's boldest and bravest women. How do these people get stuck in a like 2012 yeah. timeline? And how do they give people money to make this shit? This That's was, the thing I don't this understand. This was an expensive Yeah, look production. at this. Look at the High production value production. and all this. Traveling all yeah. over. Kim Kardashian and all these people. Yeah, this doesn't come cheap. I don't understand. I, I just, it's like, do we learn nothing from the Fauci documentary, which was a huge flop for National Geographic? Oh, that's like, right. No yeah. shit, people. Yeah, I don't know. it's just like it's it, like a brainworm with you know. I, here's what I think. I think yeah. Apple has too much money. They don't actually know anything about content. They're like, hey, we'll take it. Sometimes, by the way, sometimes stuff on Apple is incredible. Severance, one of the best TV shows I've watched in a long time. Greyhound, awesome movie. Blackbird, great miniseries. So every once in a while, because they have such big pockets, but. They're also willing, you know, Tim Cook and his guys are like, oh yeah, Hillary thing. That's what that's what the people want. And so Imagine Apple TV. Like it's hard to, yeah. it's really hard to say who's more out of touch. Hillary yeah. herself or yeah. the executives who greenlight something like that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think it's the I think it's the executives. Everything I've read about Apple TV is these people don't have a clue. They just throw money out like nobody's business. Morning show, which I personally liked, but guess what? Uh Unless you host a morning show, not a lot to a little really. Niche. Yeah, it's like a little bit of a niche audience. Where I was like, oh, I can. Well, to let that. me ask you but, this. Yeah. Let me ask the real provocative question yeah. here. Do you think that this is part of like a, a comeback plan? Do you think there's still people, little birdies in our ear, whispering like, "Now's your moment, Hillary. Now's your time. Joe Biden's approval ratings are low. You should jump in there. You'll be the unifying figure. You'll have a redo against Donald Trump." It what could be think? that. I think she's jealous of Obama for getting his Netflix deals and for his shitty National Park special, oh, which was yeah. a huge flop over I, at Netflix. I, I which, by the do. way, why is the American president talking about parks that aren't in America and then calling it national parks? I don't get it, okay? Oh, really? Where were uh, the parks? They were all over the world, oh, which is fine, that's but that's cool. for David Attenborough, not for the, oh, Barack Obama. Whatever. That's Set, my dream. Cited. I want to do that job. I would love to do it too. <laughs> Sounds great, right? Just narrate. You didn't even go. You just narrated. Uh, all right. So that put that aside. Yeah, Obama's, I think you're right. I yeah. think you're right, though. She yeah. saw him doing his Netflix deal. I think that's why. Yeah. Um, and, and his you know, podcast with did, Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, which yeah. didn't work out, but whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, and Michelle and him are mm-hmm. doing all kinds of like those that media stuff. Yes. She wanted her. I think she's jealous of Obama. Personally. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes some also, sense. Also, these are the Clintons. They want money. Like these are some of the greediest people who've ever money. lived. They, they want like, clout. They yeah. want to reattain that uh, moment when they were doing like the Clinton Clinton Global Initiative, yes. and they were like heralded right. as these world historic figures and feted by elites. All over. they want that like cachet back. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it just feels very like lean in feminism oh, so throwback, cringy. cringy. The music choices, all of it. Yeah, hundred percent. A lot there. Yeah. All right, guys, something to look forward to. Buried inside of a new foreign affairs article is an absolutely stunning revelation. Let's go and put this up there on the screen. So those of you who might not be familiar, Fiona Hill is a former Russia staffer on the National Security Council, reveals exclusively in a new piece that Russia and Ukraine agreed to a tentative settlement in April that would have halted the war, but 
as Branko Marsetti points out, what ends up happening instead is that the UK prime minister, you guys will recall, Boris Johnson, flew over to Kiev to instantly say, this is off the table. So here's what the direct quote. According to multiple Russian uh, former senior US officials we spoke with, in April 2022, Russian-Ukrainian negotiators appears to have attentively agreed on the outlines of a negotiated interim settlement. Russia would withdraw to its position on February 23 when it controlled part of the Donbass and all of Crimea, and in exchange, Ukraine would promise not to seek NATO membership and instead receive security guarantees from a number of countries. Remember, those very, very, very early days of the war, we thought that that was a very distinct possibility. They were sitting down in Istanbul. They were sitting down also, you know, in some of the contested regions, even during the actual invasion and push on Kyiv. Then it all falls apart. Billions of dollars of U.S. weapons and, U, uh, well, some billions, not as many billions, from the U.K. And then a paltry, tiny little sums start to flow in from France and everybody else. But the Anglo countries, Britain and the U.S., make it clear, we don't want you to sign a deal. Right. Zelensky sees that his real money train and political, by political necessity, the Ukrainian population wanted to fight. And then the popula- the uh, foreign countries are like, no, we don't want you to give in at all. We want to keep the war going or we want to stand up. Our own populations are now, you know, aghast or whatever. Nobody can just settle this thing. And here we are. And to be frank, you know, as where the battle line stands right now, this is basically exactly what's happened, except now a hell of a lot of people had to die for the Dunbas region, yeah. and now Dunbas is gone. And look, we'll see if that southern offensive by the Ukrainians amounts to anything. Personally, I have my doubts. This is, yeah. I mean, it really is a bombshell. And right. you lay out an important piece, too, which, yes, we know it was UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson who made the trip specifically. This was according to reports in the— uh, Kiev press and the Ukrainian right. press, specifically to say, we do not want you to settle. We are not ready for this war mm-hmm. to end. But we know that the U.S. and the U.K. have been in close alignment on uh, our policy towards Ukraine. France and Germany were taking more of an approach of let's have talks, let's yep. have diplomacy, especially Macron was on the phone with um, Putin all the time, trying to keep them in dialogue and keep them in conversation at this point, also remember what happened is Russia was sort of bogged down. Things hadn't gone well for them. All the you know, analysts were sort of wrong about how quickly this was going to all occur. The Ukrainians were doing much better than expected. So this was a key moment when if there was going to be a deal, this was it. And now you have Zelensky much more consistent in the press with like, we're going to you know achieve our maximum, so we're going to take back Crimea, we're going to take back every mm-hmm. square inch of territory. At the time, there were sort of mixed messages coming out, both from Kyiv and also from the Russian side. So this is an astounding uh, failure. It's an astounding loss. It is incredibly um, cruel to the Ukrainian people to have you know scuttled this deal and forced them to into the to, to continue this war, um, which has been horrific for them. Now you have Europeans who are we were just looking. I mean, they're facing a dire situation in terms of um, gas price, energy prices going into this winter. Chaos around the globe. I mean, in my view. Scuttling the steel is a world historic error and disaster from a human perspective. Yeah. So um, really key detail here. And also, 
great commentary and, you know, really noteworthy that this gets mentioned, like, not at all, like, barely noticed yeah, nobody in the mainstream in the press. press. This is one of those things, I'm going to read about that in a history book in 20 years. Yes. We'll finally get all the details, and it'll be kind of like reading about the telegrams in World War One, which you don't get to read them until, like, 25 years later. Yeah. So that's what's going to happen, and uh, by that time, we'll all learn how it worked out. And I'm going to venture to say that probably is going to be better than whatever ultimately the real, you know, negotiated settlement Whenever this ends, looks after like. much and hardship. A lot, yeah, and a lot of other people will be dead, yeah. unfortunately, for that reason. So be it. Time now for our weekly partnership segment with the man himself, uh, David Sobrota of The Lever. There he is. Um, great to see you, David. Good to see you, man. Good to see you both. So you all had um, truly a, a, a sort of groundbreaking bombshell disclosing this $1.6 billion <laughs> donation and, and getting the details on that. And this week you have a bit of a th- follow-up. Let's go ahead and throw this up on the screen again at the lever. Here's how we can fight dark money. Congress, state legislatures, shareholders, and news organizations must speak out and reform the system right now. David, you also personally published a piece in Rolling Stone. The headline there is, You're Subsidizing the Threat to Democracy, a Secret $1.6 billion dollar donation shows why Congress, state legislators, and shareholders must act. Um, what is the case that you're laying out here? How can we fight dark money in our system? So dark money uh, refers to anonymous, unregulated money flooding into our politics. Uh, This is money that we don't know who is making the donations, buying elections, buying legislation, buying court appointments. Uh, If if you've seen an ad where there's some shadowy group that's named, you know, Americans for Americans, typically (laughs) we don't even know who's funding those ads. Okay, so that's what dark money is. In the last election, a billion dollars of dark money was spent. So what can we do about this? Well, there's legislation that's been sitting in Congress really for for more than a decade that would simply require dark money groups to disclose their donors, to tell us who is funding them. Uh, The legislation sponsored by Senator Sheldon Whitehouse would also make sure that donors can't hide behind shell companies, LLCs, and the like, just so we actually know who is funding this. Now, People go back to the Citizens United case and say, well, you know, the Citizens United era unleashed this era of unregulated spending. That is absolutely true. However, Citizens United and all of the other subsequent decisions in that vein continue to say that the government has the power to mandate wide and broad disclosure so that Mm. we at least know who is funding uh, the spending in our elections. In other words, these rulings say... The government cannot limit the amount that's been spent. That's John Roberts's courts. That's their First Amendment argument. But they continue to justify those rulings by saying transparency is important. The government is well within its authority to require disclosure. So the bottom line is there are plenty of ways to get that disclosure. There's the Disclosed Act in Congress. There is a rider that's been put on appropriations bills for years blocking the SEC from requiring publicly traded corporations to disclose their political spending. There are shareholder resolutions that can be brought against uh, companies where the stockholders say, you need to disclose your political spending. And there's been success with that. So the point is to bring this into the light so so that we at least know who is doing the spending. 
Hmm. You know, David, I think one of the craziest things about that billion-dollar donation was just how it was structured with stock and all that other stuff. Is there even a way to get around that or in through the legal system, or is the best way just to hammer disclosure as much as possible in order to try and discourage that behavior? I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, that that was the other part of the story where what happened in this case was the the donor donated his entire company to a tax-exempt dark money group, and then the dark money group sold the company. That maneuver meant that the donor didn't pay taxes on the sale because the asset was already in the tax-exempt organization. And when the tax-exempt organization did the sale, it was tax-exempt. So effectively, the tax code, aka all of us, uh, delivered a up to $400 million subsidy to that donation. There are ways to prevent that. You can, for instance, uh, tax the gift on its way into a tax-exempt organization. There was a 2015 law uh, that actually uh, made this easier to do. In other words, created the loophole itself. You can repeal that loophole. Uh, th so there are ways to make sure that at minimum, the tax code is not uh, forcing all of us to subsidize anonymous dark money political donations. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so, do you think that transparency would have much of an impact? Because I know it's not every reform that we would want, but you're saying, like, at least this is something we can do. Do you think it actually will really change anything, or will it just be, you know, there's such a flood of cash that it makes people's eyes kind of glaze over? That's a fair question. I mean, I think it would, for instance, I think it might deter some of the biggest, most controversial spending if the donor knew they had to say who they were when they funded it. I mean, right now you're in a situation where you can fund completely outrageous things uh, and know that you can fund them if you're a huge donor from behind a wall of anonymity. So hmm. in other words, it, it, it kind of makes you makes a donor, gives a donor protection to do more outrageous things than they would perhaps want to admit to. Uh, mm. So I think there, there could be a deterrent effect. I also think there could be a deterrent effect in the political conversation where, you know, a candidate's running for office, a big uh, one of these groups swoops in, Americans for Americans, and we find out it's some donor from an industry that voters really, really don't like. Uh, I think voters obviously have a, have a, are entitled to know that information, mm -hmm. but I also think it could affect the information that they have in casting their votes. Who am I really casting a vote for? It actually all goes back to the theory, if you take it at its on its face value, of what the Roberts Court says, which is if there's a First Amendment right, I don't fully obviously subscribe to the idea that money is speech, but if you take their, their argument that money is speech, they're protecting, the court is protecting the First Amendment, uh, that disclosure to, is also speech. That if there's going to be all this noise and all this speech in our politics, we should at least be able to know who is doing the speaking. Right. I think it's also important. We saw this with um, the disclosure on um, the, what is it called, the Stock Act? Is that the one that required right. members of Congress to have to disclose what trades they were making? Like, it didn't right. solve the problem, but it right. gave journalists such as yourself and it gave independent journalists on Twitter the ability to, mm -hmm. you know, say, hey, look at what Nancy Pelosi is doing over there. And oh, by the way, lo and behold, there's legislation that's relevant to this. And she just made a massive gain for, you know, herself and her husband. So that has started to galvanize the public around bigger changes um, that wouldn't have been possible if we didn't have this that information. I think you could see a similar thing with, you know, I mean, we know some of the money that Kirsten Cinema and others are getting from industry. But if we had a full picture of like, 
She right. got this much in her campaign, and now she's doing this. Guess why? It could help to galvanize the public around those bigger changes and bigger reforms. Yeah, I, I 100% agree, and I want to just add one thing. This should not be a partisan issue. When we put our story out about the money going to Leonard Leo, the conservative operative uh, who has been uh, running the conservative effort to change the courts, some of the pushback was, well, what about George Soros? And my response to that is, well, this is not a partisan issue. Whether you agree with Leonard Leo, whether you agree with George Soros, that's actually not the point here. The point is we should we should all be able to agree, whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, we should all be able to agree that we should have the information. We should yes. be able to know who is doing the spending. It, 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 if we believe that democracy really only works when voters have the information to cast informed votes, then this is the basic information. And one last point, as I said in The Guardian and in Rolling Stone, news organizations should not pretend to be impartial or quote unquote objective here. We as journalists cannot do our day-to-day -day job of reporting on money in politics if there are not real disclosure laws. When we report on money in politics in a day-to-day -day way right now, we're reporting on a smaller and smaller portion of the campaign finance system that is still in the light, while a larger and larger part of that system is, is completely hidden behind a wall of anonymity. So journalism organizations, journalists, news outlets should be pushing aggressively for these disclosure laws to help us do our job. And one last reminder, that's how the original disclosure laws happened. The Watergate scandal, the original dark money scandal of the modern era, birthed those original disclosure laws. Now those laws are out of date. It's time for an update. Yeah. All well, well said. said. Great reporting on this. Congratulations again, and we'll see you soon, my friend. Thanks, man. Thanks to both of you. Absolutely. Hey, Breaking Points. Marshall here. I'm joined by Josh Mitchell of the Wall Street Journal. He recently wrote, which came out in paperback, The Debt Trap, How Student Loans Became a National Catastrophe, which makes him the perfect guest to do a quick follow-up on last week's news. Josh, can you start by giving us a real rundown of where things stand now with the student loan system, given the Biden administration's reform? Yeah, there are two big things that I think President Biden did here. He basically said that uh, the government is going to forgive uh, $10,000 for people who earn uh, $10,000 in student debt for people who earn under $125,000 a year, $250,000 for couples. And, um, and on top of that, if you received a Pell Grant, you can get up to $20,000 in forgiveness. Um, so that's the first thing is that a lot of people are going to get a chunk of student debt forgiven. Uh, the second thing, which I think is very important, but has not got as much detention, uh, attention is uh, going forward. If you take out loans to go to college, uh, you can now pay only 5% of your discretionary income toward your student loans each month and the interest will, will not accrue. Um, and currently you have the option to pay 10%. So uh, basically he's cutting in half uh, the amount uh, that families will have to pay down each month on their college debt, which is a very significant reduction in just how much people will end up having to pay back on their student debt. I think your summary really gets at the tensions under the system now, because I see especially that second reform, that's going to be great for 
families, for people with student loans, all those bits coming out of college. I'm not sure that making it easier to pay down ever-increasing amounts of debts is going to be the right pressure on the university system to reform. So how should we think about kind of the dilemma and the tension there? I have three broad bullet points when I think about what just happened. The first is the constitutionality of this move. The second is this idea of toxic debt, which I'll talk about. And the third is systemic reform. And so I'll I'll go in order of those three things. Uh, The first involves the constitutionality. What is very remarkable here is that President Biden himself, uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, uh, certainly Republicans, basically every political figure involved here um, have at one point or another raised very serious doubts about the ability of an executive branch, the executive branch to wipe out uh, what amounts to hundreds of billions of dollars in student debt wholesale. And so what's remarkable is that after months and the past couple years of President Biden himself having at some point raised doubts about his ability to do this, he's come out and done it. And I think that that is very important to keep in mind here. That's that's like a broader story of the executive branch just, you know, um, increasingly throughout different administrations using powers that are very dubious uh, from a legal perspective. Um, The the second thing is- Quick follow-up on that. Was the student loan pause itself, was that through the executive branch or was that Congress? Both. So President Trump, uh, at the very start of the pandemic, Uh, used uh, executive powers to pause student loans. He initially did it for a matter of months um, to to basically say, you don't have to make payments on student loans for the time being, um, and we will suspend the interest. Uh, So that was a big benefit for families that he did with executive powers. And then Congress codified it with this broad law that they passed early on in the pandemic. And then after that law expired, um, uh, the Biden administration comes in and they they basically continue to extend the, I'll call pandemic pause uh, mul- multiple times. And, and so now the other thing he did was um, he said, look, um, we're going to extend it one more time through December 31st of this year, and then that's it. Uh, people will have to start making their, their payments. So it's a combination of both a law that Congress passed as well as executive authorities. <clears throat> so this time, there's just no law. It's just an executive decision saying we're going to forgive the loans. Okay, so yeah, get to the well, second Well, and, and just, just, just to clarify, yeah. like they're, they're, they're arguing that this law passed in 2003 in the wake of you know the Iraq war. Um, or at the start of the Iraq war, it authorizes this. Um, so, you know, they're saying we're, we are using existing law, but, you know, there's a lot of people who say, well, that that's a misuse of that law. It was not intended to, you know, be used in this fashion. <clears throat> so is it possible that this decision could be overturned, like interrupted? Is there any uncertainty about the actual implementation? That's one of the very big questions here. Um, you know, when when you know, if if someone were to sue, you would have to argue. You would have to argue what their standing is. You know, basically, someone would have to say, "I am, you know, harmed financially 
by this move. And so one question in my mind is, could the, you know, could, could some private institutions who are, um, who have business with the federal government when it comes to lending, could they argue this somehow financially harms them? I really don't know. This is speculation on my part, but um, for example, uh, you know, uh, and this gets a little bit in the weeds, but um, prior to 2010, there were a lot of people who had federal loans, but those loans were uh, were awarded by private lenders and they were guaranteed by the federal government. And so, um, you know, there there is a certain amount of federal student debt that is actually on the books of private lenders. Um, not sure if that if this forgiveness applies to them, but let's just say you know that you have private you have federal loans that are held by a private lender. You consolidate into a new federal loan, which is basically a form of refinancing, and then you get forgiveness. You know, could the private lender say, "Hey, you know, I'm being harmed because you know." Um, I'm being denied a future revenue stream that under contract I, I am entitled to get. So I think that there's a really thorny question of um, who, who will have the ability to sue and what their argument will be, but it's certainly a possibility. <clears throat> and then your second probably it was toxic debt. Yes. So toxic debt, I think, is a really important point here. Um, I don't think people realize the scale of what I will, you know, call predatory lending or subprime lending that occurred in this program um, over the past 15 years. Um, one of the things I've noticed on Twitter is that there's like these caricatures of student borrowers, you know, on the right, and even among centrist Democrats, there's this focus on people who got a degree, went to graduate school, have a job are getting the so-called wage premium, you know, it, why should they not have to pay back all of their debt? Um, far be it for me to argue for or against that argument. Um, what I, or, so, so that's, one, that's one caricature. And then you have this other caricature of people mostly on the, on the far left, the Bernie Sanders crowd, for the most part saying, this doesn't go far enough because, you know, everyone who has student debt is struggling and why not just wipe it all off, wipe it all out. You know, $10,000 is not nearly enough, you know, and everyone is burdened and, you know, everyone who has student debt is just struggling. And I think that both of those are a little bit of a caricature. Um, it's not that um, I, I think that both of those statements have, you know, kernels of truth in them, but, you know, as someone who's covered this for a long time, I view the student loan market as the national mortgage market. Um, there are a lot of people who have houses, who have mortgages that they use to buy houses in very wealthy areas like Westchester, you know, New York, mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, Georgetown, Washington, DC. And so, yes, there's a lot of quote unquote privileged, well-off people who got mortgages who, uh, whose investments have paid off and, you know, why should they have any forgiveness of mortgage debt? But then you also have like a lot of people particularly think back to the housing crisis who were in Arizona or West Virginia and bought houses at inflated values. Um, they weren't really well informed about the debt product that they were getting into. Maybe they had an adjustable rate mortgage. You know, very quickly, they defaulted on their loans. They were suddenly underwater. Their, their mortgages were higher than the value of their houses, which had gone down in the housing crash. And so, 
you know, there's like the, the student debt market is the same way. You have people who took out loans to go to Princeton or to even go to the University of Maryland, my alma mater, you know, solid state school um, has great uh, outcomes in terms of graduation rates and people getting jobs. But then you have a whole lot of people who went to community colleges, um, for profit trade programs, a certain number of HBCUs, which are open enrollment. Um, you know, this, this group of schools there, you know, you can sort of categorize them as open enrollment schools and that they don't really have any admission standards. And so basically anyone who's anyone, um, regardless of their academic ability, um, their walk of life, they, they enroll, the government gives them a blank, blank check. A lot of these students, which were disproportionately drivers of student debt in the housing crisis and when student debt boomed, ended up dropping out. Um, so they didn't get a degree, they never got a well-paying job, and they, auto, and they just instantly defaulted on their loans. Or maybe they did get a degree, they graduated into a historically weak labor market back in the early 2010s, and they weren't able to keep up on their payments. There's a big cohort of those people, and that and that's what I mean by toxic debt. Um, uh, and I'll just make one more point because I know that I'm going on for a long time here. But no, no, it's um, good. This is kind of the point. <laughs> yeah, like um, counterintuitively, most people who default on their loans owe relatively small amounts between five and ten thousand dollars. Um, and that's counterintuitive because when we think of people who struggle with student debt, I think in the public discourse, it's, oh, $50,000, $100,000. That's a big issue. We talked about this last time. But a lot of the toxic debt is people who, again, enrolled, spent a semester, um, and then dropped out. They never make a payment. Most people who default just never make a payment. They drop out of college. They fall off the radar. The, the loan servicers are hounding them with emails and phone calls. There's millions of these people who their debt is just sitting on the government's books and the government and Congress just pretend like it's going to get paid at some point. And so when people say $10,000, like that's not a lot. One of the things that I think about is this is just going to, in one fell swoop, wipe out all of that toxic debt that years ago, a private lender or a bankruptcy judge would have done. So Notwithstanding the constitutionality, practically speaking, I think this takes off a lot of toxic debt. So that's point number two, and I'll stop there if you have any follow-up questions on that. No, I think you, I think you covered it. Uh, what's the third and final systemic reform point? The third and final systemic reform gets to this, partly to this income-driven repayment benefit that was included here. Basically, it's the idea of moral hazard. And I think a lot of, you know, a lot of progressives that I've followed in this debate, I think they they think of this idea of moral hazard as this like esoteric economic theoretical problem that, you know, Milton Friedman-esque types worry about. I actually think it's a very big issue here. And um, and I and I think um, if you look at how colleges behave, um, they have been able to raise their prices at such high levels because no one really suffers negative consequences, at least from the school's perspective, when they encourage students to overborrow. And I think that this might make this worse. This really risks making that perverse incentive worse. If colleges can now go to students and say, don't worry about the balance, you know, yeah, you're going to have to take out $50,000 on the front end. I know that sounds like a lot. But look, when you come out, you're only going to have to pay 5% of your discretionary income. Um, so 
whether it's 50,000 or 75,000, you're, you're never going to pay this all back. I think that that's a very serious issue. Some colleges have, have already done that, basically. They're counseling students on how to take advantage of these options so that they desensitize students to the high tuition. And so what's what I find very remarkable here is this is in some ways the opposite of what happened in the housing crisis. In the housing crisis, you had a lot of people who took out a lot of debt to that they they overborrowed. And the government, I think there's a consensus that the government didn't do enough to help out individual homeowners, but that the government focused a lot on systemic reform. So they created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. They passed Dodd-Frank. They increased requirements for how much banks should hold in capital. They did all of these things to you know, focus on, um, at least from their perspective, fixing the lending system so that going forward, there would not be you know, such reckless lending um, that presented a uh, systemic risk to the U.S. economy. Um, here, it's like the the fl- it flips the script. Here, the government has done a lot for individual student debtors. They've paused their payments for three years, interest free. They've forgiven ten thousand, or in some cases, twenty thousand dollars in debt. Um, they've cut in half how much you know college uh, people with college debt. Um, are going to have to pay going forward each month. Um, So they've done a lot on top of the stimulus that the government provided for households to get through the pandemic. They've done a lot for individuals. Um, They've done nothing to solve the systemic problems. And they're just like ignoring that. And, you know, um, based on historical trends and based on the government's own projections, we're going to have as a country, another $1.6 trillion in student debt within a few years. So I think it's really remarkable. um, The, the lack of focus from this administration or Congress on some of the broader issues. And uh, I guess my reaction as we close it is it's either uh, we got to do over in, you know, in a few years, which is, Probably both uh, not a great thing from a uh, systemic problem issue, but also I think it, it presents an opportunity to learn from this current experience, the way you put it. Josh, this is really great. Can you do a quick shout out to the the debt trap for anyone who wants to like dive deeper into this issue? Yeah, so uh, please, by all means, buy my book, uh, bit.ly bit uh, slash debt trap book. Um, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it in independent bookstores. The paperback just came out. Um, it goes over the whole history. I think it's very important to really understand how we got here, um, why we're here. And, and I think it, I, I try to unpack um, all of these various is- issues in detail. Um, it also has, if you're a history buff, just a lot of stuff about, you know, how Sputnik launched this whole program in the first place. Um, so, yeah, please, by all means. <laughs> Josh, thank you for joining us on Breaking Points. Yes, thank you. I, I love being here. Thank you. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Alec Baldwin. 
This past season on my podcast, Here's the Thing, I spoke with more actors, musicians, policymakers, and so many other fascinating people, like jazz bassist Christian McBride. Jazz is based on improvisation, but there's very much a form to it. You have a conversation based on that melody and those chord changes. So it's kind of like giving someone a topic and say, okay, talk about this. Listen to the new season of Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.